Section 62 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The World's Story, Volume 12, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 62. Braddock's Defeat, 1755 by john fiske it was in february seventeen fifty five that general braddock arrived at governor dinwiddie's house at williamsburg the spring was spent in preparations for the campaign that was to wrest fort duquesne from the enemy and recover the gateway of the west the figure of braddock had long been well known to all americans a british bulldog brave obstinate and honest but more than ordinarily dull in appreciating an enemy's methods, or in freeing himself from the precise traditions in which he had been educated. His first and gravest mistake, however, that of underrating his Indian foe, is one that has been shared by many commanders, to their confusion and by many writers. The fighting qualities of the red man have often been ill-appreciated, and in particular he has been ignorantly accused of cowardice because of his stealthy methods and unwillingness to fight in the open. In point of fact, his method of fighting was closely adapted to the physical conditions of the American wilderness, and it was just what was produced by survival of the fittest during thousands of years of warfare under such conditions when white men came to america they were at first able to wreak wholesale destruction upon the natives without regard to numbers or conditions such was the case when the pequots the stamford indians and the narragansetts were swept out of existence this was largely because of the european superiority in arms but in later days when this disparity had been done away with white men were apt to find indians quite as formidable enemies as they cared to deal with and in order to achieve success it was found necessary to adopt the indian methods abandoning solid columns and lines of battle so as to fight in loose order and behind trees or earthworks it is interesting to see that in these later days, when the increase in the power and precision of death-dealing weapons has greatly increased the dangerousness of the battlefield, there has been a tendency to recur to Indian methods in so far as concerns looseness of order and the use of various kinds of cover. In the eighteenth century there was nobody so ill-fitted to fight with Indians as a European regular, trained in European manuals of war, and inured to European discipline. Braddock's fatuity was well illustrated in his reply to Dr. Franklin, when the latter informed him that the Indians, as antagonists, were by no means to be despised. These savages may indeed, said Braddock, be a formidable enemy to your raw American militia, but upon the king's regular and disciplined troops, sir, it is impossible that they should make any impression. Many stories of Braddock's arrogance and ill-temper have come down to us, but if we consider the obstacles that were thrown in the way of military promptness, 
by which zealous men like Shirley and Dinwiddie were so often goaded to anger. We need not wonder that Braddock's temper was sometimes not altogether at its best. He scolded a good deal about the legislatures, and sometimes let fall exasperating remarks about the lack of zeal and rectitude in public servants. For such insinuations there was sometimes apparent ground, especially when the member of a legislature showed himself more intent upon annoying the governor than upon attacking the enemy. The energetic Shirley made a visit to Braddock's camp at Alexandria, in the course of which a comprehensive plan of procedure was agreed upon, which involved operations on the Niagara River and Lake Champlain, and the northeastern frontier as well as in the Allegheny Mountains. For the present we will confine our story to the latter. At the outset a mistake was made in the choice of a route. For a force like Braddock's, wagons were indispensable, and wagons were far more common in Pennsylvania than in Virginia. A route corresponding with the general direction of the Pennsylvania Railroad would not only have been much shorter than the route through Virginia, but it would have been, at least in its earlier stages, a route through a population which could furnish wagons. By adopting this route, Braddock would have made the Pennsylvanians feel some personal interest in the acquisition of Fort Duquesne, whereas when he decided to march through Virginia, it only tended to confirm Pennsylvanians in the impression that Fort Duquesne, if conquered, was to pass into Virginian hands. After a while, Benjamin Franklin went about among the farmers, and by pledging his own personal credit, obtained a fair supply of horses and wagons. Braddock's force at length set out in detachments and marched along the banks of the Potomac River to the old trading station of the Ohio Company known as Wills Creek. It had lately been fortified and received the name of Fort Cumberland. This was the rendezvous of the army. The two regiments from England had been increased by further enlistments in Virginia of nine companies of militia, of fifty men each, to a total of fourteen hundred men. Braddock despised these militia, and had small respect either for partisan guerrilla forces or for Indian auxiliaries. The services of the chief Scaroyadi, or of the noted frontiersman Black Jack, were at his disposal at the cost of a few civil words only, but he treated these worthies so superciliously that they went off on business of their own. In spite of these instances of indiscretion, however, it is not correct to say, as has often been said, that Braddock neglected all precaution and was drawn into an ambuscade. Such statements are samples of the kind of exaggeration that is apt to grow up about events that create great public excitement. Braddock made mistakes enough, but he was not absolutely a fool. During the whole of the march, flanking parties were kept out on each side of the creeping column, while scouts in all directions ranged through the depths of the woods. The column, which consisted of about 2,200 men, sometimes extended for four miles along a road hardly fit to be called a bridle path, on the average scarcely four yards in width. 
The march began on June 10th, and eight days later the force had advanced only thirty miles from Fort Cumberland. By that time the rear of the column was so heavily encumbered with sick men that its power of marching had almost come to an end. It was therefore decided to leave with the rear column of about one thousand men, most of the heavier wagons and other impedimenta, and to proceed somewhat more quickly toward Fort Duquesne with an advance guard of twelve hundred. But in spite of this diminution of labor, the difficulties of the road were such that the 7th of July had arrived when the advance column approached Turtle Creek a stream that flows into the monongahela about eight miles south of fort duquesne meanwhile its progress had been detected and watched as was to have been expected by french and indian scouts at the fortress contrecoeur still governed with beaujou second in command the force consisted of five or six hundred frenchmen partly regulars and partly canadian militia with eight hundred indians some of them baptized converts from the northeast some of them wild ojibways led by charles de langlade the conqueror of the demoiselles and the rest ottawas under their renowned chieftain the long-headed and ferocious pontiac when the approach of Braddock's column to the mouth of Turtle Creek was announced at the French fortress, Captain Beaujou volunteered to go out with a strong party and lay an ambuscade for the English. With this end in view, he took some two hundred and fifty Frenchmen and over six hundred Indians, and stole through the woods between the fortress and Turtle Creek, but he never succeeded in preparing the desired ambuscade nor did braddock's force march into an ambuscade in any proper sense of the word so sensible was braddock of the great danger of the road between turtle creek and fort duquesne on the right bank of the monongahela that he forded the latter stream and proceeded down the opposite bank for five or six miles when he again crossed the river and brought his column on to a rising ground along which the narrow road ran toward the fortress his column was then in its usual condition, a few Virginian guides in front, then the advance under Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gage, among whose men were two lieutenants destined in later days to play inglorious parts, Horatio Gates and Charles Lee. Behind Gage came Sir John St. Clair with the working party, followed by a couple of cannon, and these in turn by the wagons with powder and tools. Behind these came the principal parts of the column, while both flanks and rear were very strongly guarded with flanking parties. The situation would not have been particularly dangerous if the British regulars had known how to separate and fight under cover. It was owing to this internal faultiness, and not to any ambush, that Braddock's column came to grief. When the opposing forces met, it was simply the meeting of the two heads of columns in a narrow woodland road. Who can ever forget that moment when Gage's light horsemen quickly fled back and those behind could catch a glimpse through the trees of a young Frenchman wearing a brilliant red gorgette and bounding lightly along the road, till, on seeing his enemy, he turned and waved his hand. 
that brief glimpse of Captain Beaujou at the moment of his death will forever live in history. At the third volley he dropped dead. Gage's men delivered fire with admirable coolness, but its effect was slight, for the enemy, in two bifurcating columns, passed to right and to left of the English, all the time pouring in a galling fire from behind trees and bushes. Never were the conditions of a battle more simple. The English were torn to pieces because they stood in solid line where they could be seen, and if anything were needed to make it impossible to miss them, it was their bright scarlet coats. On the other hand, no matter how diligently the British loaded and fired, they could see nothing to aim at. One officer who had been in the thickest of the fight, literally wedged in among falling bodies, said after the battle that he had not caught sight of an Indian during the whole of the battle. They were fighting simply against puffs of smoke which seemed to come from all points of the compass. For a time the cannon were diligently plied and split many tree trunks. Many of the regulars fired wildly and hit their own comrades. The Virginians, who scattered and fought in Indian fashion, suffered but little and did more than their share of execution. Some of the regulars tried to imitate these tactics, but wherever Braddock saw anything of the sort going on, he would strike them with the flat of his sword and force them back into the ranks. As for the general himself, he performed prodigies of valor and was forever in the most exposed places, while he had four horses shot under him, and at last fell from the fifth with one of his lungs badly torn by a bullet. Washington's fighting was equally desperate. Two horses were killed under him, and his clothes were partly torn from his back by bullets. He seemed to bear a charmed life. It is needless to enlarge further upon such a scene. Let it suffice to say that out of a total force of 1,373, all but 459 were killed or wounded, and in addition to these out of eighty-six officers only twenty-three escaped unhurt the whole affair was as thickly fraught with horror as anything that is likely to happen in modern warfare the utter fatuity of the affair, the hopeless feeling of brave men, drawn up for slaughter without understanding the means of defense, has in it something peculiarly intolerable. The gallant Braddock, as he lay half-dazed upon his deathbed, was heard to murmur, Who would ever have thought it? And again, after an interval, We shall know better how to do it next time. The skilful retreat from this field of blood added much to the credit of the youthful Washington, and marked him out as an officer likely to have a brilliant future. As for the rear column, which had been left under command of Colonel Dunbar, it retreated to Fort Cumberland, and presently abandoned the campaign, a most ill-judged and reprehensible proceeding which threw open the frontier to all the horrors of Indian invasion. The events of the past twelve months had done all that twelve months could do in destroying the influence of the English among the Ohio tribes. Washington's disaster at Great Meadows had gone far toward undermining their allegiance. 
Braddock's insolence had seasoned their contempt with a spice of anger, and now at last this headlong overthrow of an English army had convinced the red men that good medicine was all on the side of the great white father on the St. Lawrence. Thus inauspiciously for the English began the mighty war that was to put an end to the dominion of Frenchmen in America, yet it must be remembered that no declaration of war had as yet been made public. These deeds of blood were the deeds of a time of so-called peace. End of section 62 This recording is in the public domain.